Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 14th, 2021. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, So, Donald Trump makes history by being the first uh, president to be impeached twice. Uh, He has been impeached twice in the space of 13 months, um, which raises the question of uh, those of us who thought that the first impeachment was uh, politically and practically unsound, I think have, have a certain justification now because the uh the the first impeachment uh this the, if this impeachment had been the first impeachment obviously i think it would have been a little harder for republicans to say oh this is just political uh or you know for his defenders to say this is just political and i i have to say that also in the course of the debate yesterday on the house floor um since of course everybody wants to get up and get their 30 seconds or 1 minute to 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 give a little peroration, um, a lot of Democrats gave the game away by praising themselves for having introduced articles of impeachment in 2017 or in, you know, in, in I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Steve Cohen of Tennessee saying, hey, I wanted to impeach him in 2017, which is actually the opposite, the message that should be the opposite of anybody who actually looks at this and says, what happened on January 6th is itself an isolation from everything else that has gone on in his presidency, the reason that he needed to be impeached and removed from office, that it has nothing to do with how he said this or he did that or he was a white supremacist or a racist or you know mean about Charlottesville, whatever, however you want to slice it, that he did something very specific, very localized, very focused, that led a crowd to breach and storm the... Uh, the Capitol building and that that is why you do it. You don't do it because he was a jerk or you don't like him or his policies were terrible or anything like that. And so by, by saying, ah, you see, I told you, I told you back then we should have impeached him in, in 2017. That's where you give sucker to the people who want to say, yeah, this is all political. You just always wanted to get him. And now you're just using this as a means to humiliate him. And uh, and, and that's not going to work. I'm you surprised see? you remember a single moment from those speeches. I didn't watch all of them, but I watched most of them. They were rote. They were rushed. Um, they were perfunctory. Apparently, uh, Adam Kinsinger is a Republican who has been very outspoken recently about the dangers represented by this president and why he needs to be removed from office. He requested of Democratic leadership somewhere between five and seven minutes to make the case, the Republican case against the president, and was denied, said, you can have your normal minute. And he declined to take that opportunity and so didn't speak for his position. Um, Neither did Liz Cheney, as far as I know. I don't think she spoke in defense of her own position, um, which is a profoundly uh, serious mistake on the part of Democrats. And we always knew they were going to make a mistake or two. And this is the first and probably a big one, um, because it that would have been the soundbite that you would have heard across all the news networks. And by declining that opportunity and just giving all these politicians another yet another chance to grandstand, they didn't have a single uniform case that could be presented 
to the to the general public, especially to skeptical Republicans and Republican voters, um, as to why this is a necessary uh, step. So, missed opportunity, probably one of many. Well, you know, as always, when you when you watch the Congress in action, it is a disheartening spectacle. I don't care when it is; I mean, almost all the time. Uh, hearings, you know, investigatory hearings, uh, proceedings, um, with all this talk of the last week about the Grand Citadel, the sacred space of our democracy and all of that, what goes on inside the building as a matter, as a general rule, is not very edifying. And this was not a particularly edifying spectacle, though, uh, you know, the, the, the people that I'm talking about, the ones who sort of, you know, played the... See, uh, you know, the, the, you know, he's terrible, and I always said he was terrible. Na 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 na. We're we're not the majority of the speakers, um, and yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it was it was everybody like getting a bite at the mm-hmm. apple. You know, you you're recognized for thirty seconds. You're recognized for a minute. I mean, nothing serious can be said. Uh, you know, in in a in a time frame like that, the only speaker who had a long peroration, as far as I could tell was Steny Hoyer, the number two uh, person in the Democratic leadership. Uh, Pelosi did not speak, nor did she sit in the chair uh, presiding, interestingly enough, though she did have a a preposterous grand moment uh, where she called in the press for what she said was a press conference so that there could be the video of her signing uh, the impeachment uh, article uh, to send to the house. And then, you know, the press started asking her questions and she walked out and I'm yet to hear, I'm yet to see anybody, <clears throat> you know, among the, you know, among the press course say, Hey, what, what, what was that? What gives like, what, what are we, we're like there to be your, there to be your uh, court stenographer and official photographer. Like we wanted to ask you what, what happens now and you won't answer our questions again, inedifying, I would say. Um, but let's, <clears throat> let's try to unpack this a little bit because, of course, you know, what's interesting is once once it's done, now it's been done, and now we go to this question of what, what, what happens now. And <clears throat> it's unprecedented to be impeached twice. It's unprecedented for someone to be impeached seven days before, uh, before he is uh, out of office and now goes to this question of what will the Senate do with these articles of impeachment and how will it manage? And, uh, you know, uh, anyone want to come up with a pro pro and con on somehow pocketing, pocketing the impeachment and not having a trial? Um, Well, one, the the argument being made, I don't necessarily agree with it, but the argument being made for for the delay until after the inauguration is first focus on a safe and peaceful next week while we have a transfer of power where everything goes smoothly. Um, And the new Senate coming in can set the terms for what the trial will look like and more evidence will have been gathered at that point to make a stronger case. Um, they'll have, you know, or an, ex- or an exculpatory or an exculpatory case. So like the idea that you actually, this was very quickly rushed in the house, which I think that was a good thing. Um, the argument that would be made against, oh, this is just partisan, you know, uh, behavior. He shouldn't, this shouldn't happen. He's not there anyway. 
you, the Senate could make a good case that look a little bit of uh, delay will give us some time to build a, a real have a real trial. Um, so we'll see. I mean, usually the shortest one was the last one, right? It was like 21 days or something. These things take time. So I wasn't averse to, to McConnell saying I don't think it was some huge ploy on McConnell's part to say, you know, here's the schedule. And he was pretty forthcoming uh, with his response to that. So there is some argument to be made for it in the same way that I think as an emotional and kind of uh, psychological matter for the American people, it would just be nice to have it done with. And then Biden comes in and then that's over. But that's obviously not going to happen. So we can tease out two other things where there is this question of do you impeach somebody after uh, they're uh, out of office and there is precedent for uh, for having a trial after someone has resigned, you know, because uh, the way to avoid an impeachment trial, according to this doctrine, would be just to resign uh, from office. And if you actually want to have a, a, a genuine trial, uh, that shouldn't be sort, short-circuited by such uh, behavior uh, necessarily. But the remedy, as we see it in the, as we can see from the uh, impeachment clause in the Constitution, um, you know, the remedy is either removal from office, which of course will be impossible because Trump will already have been removed from office by the ending of his term, um, or uh, or uh, pr- procedures that will make it impossible for him to run again for office. And you're going to hear people say that that constitutes a bill of attainder, you know, one of these things that uh, <clears throat> the Sixth Amendment outlaws. But if the remedy uh, for uh, for a conviction in the Senate uh, is constitutional itself, which is a, a further ban from serving in office. I don't see how that f- constitutes a bill of attainder. The real issue here is going to be, and I think ultimately in the course of a trial, if the trial is serious and not just nakedly political, uh, whether or not you can say that what Trump said in his speech constitutes actual <clears throat> incitement. And there is a standard called the Brandenburg standard uh, based on a lawsuit that try, tries to spell out what incitement would actually be. And having read through the speech again, I, I don't know that except politically, I don't know as a matter of law, whether you could actually find that the sort of rhetoric that Trump used word by word, as you would have to prove it in a criminal court, could be considered incitement in the most practical sense. Yeah, you know, but that's a silly standard because almost not, nobody, nobody, nobody brings up, almost never is there a prosecution based on the Brandenburg standard because it is so high. It is so difficult to right. prove in court but, beyond a criminal standard beyond a well, reasonable. Because, that that's, not because, that right. that's, that's because speech in the United States is protected. Yeah, but and I, political speech in particular is protected. And in particular, the speech of uh, representatives, elected representatives, is is so protected that they can say anything they want to on the floor of the of the of the of the House or Senate without facing any criminal sanction. I mean, that you can literally, according to the speech and debate clause, you could call someone a child molester on the floor of the House or Senate. The House and Senate can can discipline you. Uh, according to their own procedures, but you cannot be hauled into court and accused of defamation or slander for what you say on the, you know, during proceedings, uh, official proceedings of the House or Senate because of the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, which is there to protect elected representatives 
for, you know, to give them the right to say whatever it is they think they need to say. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a silly standard at all because uh, having watched uh, a lot of the speeches yesterday, but not all of them, um, it was clear to me that the uh, representatives who were against impeachment, and I don't mean the the crazier ones, but I mean the sort of more level-headed ones, um, they made a better case on the language issue. They they made a case on the language issue, um, you know, talking about how Trump um, said to to march peacefully and patriotically and whatnot. They 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 had a better showing than. Um, uh, those than the uh, those in favor of impeachment who um, uh, tried to make this sort of broad emotional case about incitement. Now, I, I, I say that, you know, as someone I think he should be impeached. But but on that issue, um, I think they, they were marginally effective, whereas their opponents were not. No, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you think he should be impeached not because he violated a criminal statute, but because he violated his oath of office. Correct. I think that's right. right. Yeah. Which right. is what impeachable standards are. Right. Well, well no, but that's why there the- is no impeachable standard. The, the, all, all it says in the Constitution is high crimes and misdemeanors. It does not define what those are. Well, and that's why the, the debate and actually we'll see in the Senate trial, um, there is a there's a danger here for the left and the right in terms of the discussion of incitement and speech. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started taping. But, you know, you can. If you want to start a punishing speech as incitement um, that goes well beyond our existing legal standard, and there are many members of Congress who are encouraging that in the wake of what happened on January 6th, including AOC and others, they want to crack down on that kind of speech. They think it's bad. This is what the deplatforming by Silicon Valley tech companies is about as well. The problem, of course, is that, and there is an interesting ongoing case that the Supreme Court just sent back to the lower courts of a uh, police officer suing a leader of the Black Lives Matter movement who incited a a mob and this police officer was severely injured as a result of that uh, that mob attack and he's suing the black lives matter leader saying he incited this violence and the standard is is and should be very high if you're a free speech advocate but as we know from you know particularly the younger generations in this country that standard of really dedicated uh, commitment to free speech has been waning for years in a very worrisome way the idea that speech is violence has become a tenet of the progressive left and they are, they, there's now an opportunity, some of them see, to move in and make that much more uh, uh, a strong statement that will have penalties if it's violated. That's what we're You know, we look at this and we say, ah, you see, they don't like speech and they don't, they, they consider this noble. Um, and, and, and almost, I mean, it, it, it's almost to the point of a, a religious doctrine that speech is harmful and hurtful and that there should be punishment for inflicting pain, even if that pain is only psychic, on anyone who hears speech that 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 makes them uncomfortable. Um, uh, and the doctrine that I grew up with, and that was sort of the classic, simple liberal uh, position, um, almost to an ex- to an extreme measure, so that you know. Uh, many First Amendment lawyers um, were hotly defensive of the most extreme versions of pornography, for example, on the grounds that, you know, if you start mucking around, uh, you know, with with those kinds of speech that make everybody incredibly uncomfortable and, you know, even if they're, you know, depicting illegal acts or something like that, 
um, you you have to defend it because uh, you know uh, a speech itself is a beautiful thing, and b this is the camel's nose under the tent. That was the you know uh, I'm I'm almost sixty, and you know my one of my formative uh, life experiences in in political life in New York in 1974 was a race for the Manhattan district attorney's office that was eventually won by Robert Morgenthau, who then served in the office for about 750 years until he, you know, until he was finally ousted at the age of 3000. Um, but Morgenthau was running against someone named Richard Q, uh, who had, who was the sort of appointed uh, DA because his predecessor had either died or resigned or something like that. And Q lost his race in 1974 because he had prosecuted Lenny Bruce for uh, obscenity and that it only happened a decade earlier it wasn't like it had happened 40 years earlier uh the the uh, argument that lenny bruce had been uh, persecuted and uh, driven uh into his uh driven to overdose and death um by the heavy hand of the censoring state uh had by this point become uh an orthodoxy and uh, and and the notion that we needed to be protected from obscenity uh, had become something that no no right thinking person uh, believed by that point. And here we are, like forty some odd years later, and the doctrine has flipped entirely. And the free speech movement in the country is a movement on the right, and the and the people who wish to uh, repress and and retard speech. Uh, are people who are uh, both from the sort of conventional, uh, go from conventional liberal institutional voices at universities and the like onto the far left, which no longer sees a practical value Except in free speech. Only with political speech, though, and cultural speech, because they still will defend to the teeth stuff like the, you know, if, if you want to say that that WAP song that was the big song of 2020 is kind of disgusting and maybe they shouldn't play it on the radio, boom, you're going to have a lot of progressives coming down and saying you're trying to shame these women's right to celebrate their sexuality. So it's weird because, like, they want to keep certain parts of it. Some of the some of the uh, expressions uh, part of speech they want to still protect the most extremes. It's the political political speech that comes from the other side of the aisle that they that they come down pretty pretty uh, seriously on and they also use inflammatory political speech for their cause if they just don't get called out on it much you know right well and that was the irony of listening to Maxine Waters lecture the country for yeah. a minute about about the dangers of, of violent speech and incitement because she was she's she's well known and there are many clips of her doing precisely that throughout the summer right so um the the point here is that is that to to go at, at Donald Trump on the grounds that his speech was incitement, um, to go at you know Rudy Giuliani on the grounds that his speech was incitement. These are incitement in this case is a legal standard and and does run afoul of the First Amendment. There's just no question about it that you are you are uh, uh, on the on a razor's edge about uh, the suppression of speech. If you if you say, for example, that someone's saying we need to fight is incitement leading to people, you know, getting into physical, you know, uh, going and punching somebody in the face. Um, fight is a very generic word. And in fact, you know, as Sarah uh, Isker has pointed out, you know, when when we talk about political speech, we say these are fighting words. Like, so if we're saying fighting words in that way. Fight is obviously a metaphor for an argument or, you know, it's not it's not well, this, literally mean 
go go hit somebody or go you know hit somebody with a fire extinguisher. Well, and this is why Abe, to Abe's point about uh, you know the the distinctions that weren't made during during the brief floor uh, statements uh, during impeachment that I think need to be thought about before anything happens in the Senate is this. You can make, and I think we should make, a very strong political case that what Donald Trump did is a form of incitement for which he should be held responsible, not because it meets the legal standard protected, you know, of protected speech, but because with more power comes more responsibility. And as a betrayal of his oath of office, it doesn't matter if it meets the legal standard because he was responsible and should have known, actually, what would have happened, even if he, in a court of law, wouldn't wouldn't stand up to scrutiny because of his unique role and the unique amount of power we've concentrated in him. So, but that distinction has not yet been made by the Democrats, and it would behoove, behoove them to make it in the future. Well, we may yet. I mean, the second, briefly, the second um, argument in favor of a delayed trial, albeit I don't find it particularly compelling, but nevertheless, is that the evidence that will be gathered and presented could provide some picture of what the president was doing in those moments. And according to reporting that we have, um, which has yet to be verified and needs to be uh, sussed out in a trial and in a blue ribbon bipartisan commission, um, is that the president was derelict in his duty to protect the Capitol, protect lawmakers, indeed was intentionally, deliberately allowing these events to unfold, Um, which again, that's not illegal, that doesn't violate a criminal statute, but there's no definition of the oath of office that he took in 2017 that would allow for that sort of thing. Uh, you know, that's a complicated point also not to get like Talmudic about this, but, you know, there is a no or should have known standard in the law. You you don't just uh, you, you cannot you're not just necessarily liable for a sin of commission, meaning someone says, Mr. President, we have to send the you know, National Guard to the Hill, and then you say, no, we will not send the National Guard to the Hill because I want the Hill to be, you know, violated by protesters. But you're like, uh, you know, you're sitting there, you should order the National Guard to the Hill, and you don't. Um, that That's the sin of omission, and it is, it's not only still a sin, it can be criminal. You know, there is this whole thing going on now it's a bat it's a very slippery slope right now in michigan the former governor of michigan snyder has been indicted on on misdemeanor charges uh owing to the flint water supply uh case uh and he is being convicted on the grounds that he knew or should have known that by switching this contract and using the water of the flint river uh that um, that was going to poison people. And, uh, and in fact, there were little bits of uh, phone traffic that suggested that he kind of did know or might have known. Um, this is a very dangerous thing that's going on here because, you know, th- this could be applied to every politician everywhere at every time. But again, as, as Christine said, we're talking about the President of the United States in a moment of high tension and an unprecedented act of violence happening, you know, that he could see from a TV screen that he did not take any role in attempting to quell, quiet, or settle down until hours into it when he made that weird, you know, we love you, but go home statement. Um, So 
all this being said, my looking at this now, can when here's here's the thing. Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, said yesterday the president bears responsibility some responsibility for what happened at the Capitol. Now McCarthy's behavior over the last two months has been shameful in many ways because largely the shame of any human being who uh, publicly says things he does not believe, as we now know. We know that he believed that Joe Biden won the election fair and square, and he said that he didn't, or he said that there were real questions or something like that. And he did that uh, saying something that he did not believe for, you know, naked political reasons. And so that's shameful. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's bad, like the way it's bad when people, uh, lie, you know, just in general. Um, is, is there a way short of impeachment and remo- and this trial? I mean, the, the impeachment has happened. So, you know, to saying, uh, say, well, I believe he should be impeached, like he's been impeached. So it, it's very hard for people to separate these things out, right? But it's important for people listening to understand Trump has been impeached. What he hasn't been is removed. There hasn't been a Senate trial. It's a two-stage effort. Um, And is there a way for him to be held responsible that does not involve a Senate trial? And the answer apparently is no. I mean, that's, you know, because to say, well, uh, he's been punished because he lost the election. Well, he didn't lose the election because of what happened on January 6th. What? How? How is he to be held responsible without a Senate trial? And I think the answer, Kevin McCarthy says he should be held responsible, but Matt Gates doesn't think he should be held responsible. Jim Jordan doesn't think he should be held responsible. Lauren Boebert doesn't think he should be held responsible. Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't think he should be held responsible. A lot of those Republicans who stood up and started yelling and screaming about how bad liberals were yesterday do not believe that Trump should be held responsible. Um, and I mean, the and, argument that they're essentially making is, well, you know, he's going to be out of office pretty soon. So that's, you know, why are we, why are we doing this? And that I think is going to provide the cover that Republican senators will need to move on from this because the trial is not going to commence until after the inauguration at this point, what it looks like. And they'll just say, well, it's over. What are we even doing this for? Um, I mean, the, the precedent you're essentially establishing there is that in the transition period, in the interim, um, president can do whatever he wants because there will be no ramifications. There will be no, there's no uh, mechanism to which you can apply to impose some standards on the outgoing president because the it's just silly. It's unnecessary. He's not going to be out of there. He's going to be out of there and soon, soon enough. So you, you know, you're creating this, this vacuum, of responsibility and accountability in this, in this period that I don't think anybody would really think would be a good standard to set for future presidents going forward. If we really were to explore this as, as a precedent and not just an excuse to get out of doing your jobs. 
Well, and this is, it's, I think that's a really good point because usually we spend a lot of time during the lame duck transition period complaining about the bad pardons and, you know, the, all the ways in which an outgoing administration can still do these small abuses of power or what are seen by people on the other side of the aisle as abuses or overreach. And there aren't consequences for those. It's kind of something that's become an expected part of the system. I mean, I think we should, uh, Congress wants to do something useful. It can pass legislation that will change the transition period. Like, it's too long. Like, there's no reason for it to be this long. It's an arbitrary decision. Um, it was shortened. It, it was, was shortened, shortened already, right? It I mean, was could... six months because, right. of course, people had to ride, you know, had to maybe ride a horse from right. Ohio. <laughs> right. And, I mean, there's no know, reason in yeah. a modern democracy for this period to be this long in any case. But I think there there have to be consequences because, and again, I mean, we I feel like we're kind of beating a dead horse with this, but it's going to come back to bite Republicans if there aren't, because what's going to stop the next, what's going to stop a Joe Biden administration from having a lame duck period where they do all kinds of mischief and nonsense uh, using the federal government's power? There has to be accountability also because crazies like Lauren Boebert are, are promising to introduce articles of impeachment about Joe Biden on day one. Like ri- ridiculous people that will was Marjorie overreach. Taylor Green. I'm oh, sorry, Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor. Taylor. Yes. Oh, okay. Anyway, I do lump all the I, I lump all the crazy freshman Republicans together. I'm, <laughs> but there are we a message needs to be sent, and I think that all of Trump's efforts now to kind of you know dress up and do a video like he's a a, a criminal defendant who's been told to clean up for court and say, oh, let's all be calm, let's not have any violence. It that's too little, too late. There still need to be consequences for what happened on January sixth and his role in it. Speaking of freshman Republican in the House, I need to make a correction. Earlier in the week, I spoke of uh, a newly minted uh, congressman from Michigan, um, and I mispronounced his name. His name is Peter Mayer. It's spelled M-E-I-J-E-R, and I said Major, but apparently it's pronounced Mayer, and his um, chief of staff emailed me to say that I mispronounced it, and a couple of other people did too, so I'm happy to be able to correct that. He he made a very powerful statement and uh and and i think a pretty courageous one um uh for an incoming republican particularly with more continuing uh poll data suggesting that 80 percent of republicans uh uh think that uh think that uh, trump did fine and uh 55 percent of them still want him to be the nominee in 2024 uh, and so, you know, we have to sort of uh, f- face the fact that uh, nothing that happened here um, seems to be shaking. I mean, I think at the margins, you know, 10 Republicans voted for for uh, removal as somebody uh, for impeachment, as somebody said, that is the largest number that has ever voted cross party for an impeachment ever. Um, of course, there haven't been enough impeachments to really <laughs> measure measure that um and but that's still a one twentieth of the caucus i mean it's not you know it's five percent of the caucus so uh they have clearly gotten the message that this is not something that they wish to pursue or that they should pursue or is just you know a part of the general ongoing political strife and I think that they are likely to be more defensive over time rather than less, unless we get some real smoking gun out of that, you know, commission that hasn't even been formed yet. Um, and so yeah, the simple fact of the matter is that if you are a conservative in the United States who believes that Trump deserved to be impeached and removed, uh, whether you are an elected official or an intellectual or just an ordinary run-of-the-mill voter, uh, you are very much in the minority. 
uh, and that's just the the uh, among your people, and that's just the way uh, things are. Because negative partisanship is uh, is the most potent and dominant force in American political life now. And if so and so says black, you say white. I mean, that's 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 part of it. And what's more, if they say black, they're evil for saying black. And they're victimizing you for saying white, and so that's <laughs> and so that's 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 where we are. The Trump uh, is is going to be a martyr to you know to uh, to the political uh, evil that has been practiced upon him uh, over in the last week of his presidency. So how do we cope with that? Now, by the way, speaking from the position of Commentary Magazine. Uh, we are used to being a minority within a minority within a minority. I've said this many times in this podcast. You know, uh, we are uh, we are conservatives in the Jewish community, which uh, marks us, uh, or you know, uh, uh, not everyone on this podcast um, is Jewish, but um, we are we are conservatives in the Jewish community that marks us as uh, as a as a minority. We are um, you know we are highbrows in a in a you know, in a publishing world in which uh, uh, that world is very small, and so you know we're we're used to laboring in um, laboring in minority precincts, but uh, that is not true of most people who generally are very uncomfortable um, being iconoclastic and not being part of a you know of a comforting crowd. So, where does this wh- where where does this go? I mean, we've been saying like, you know, we 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 can name six or seven senators who might vote to convict Trump uh, on the Republican side right now, but if the polling is immovable, it's a little hard to see. And if the, you know, if Trump ends up raising five hundred million dollars, complaining that you know he's been unfairly treated, and that money is sitting in a pool somewhere for him to use as a weapon against uh, Republicans who vote for his removal in the Senate probably not going to happen so therefore the trial will just simply be another another create another partisan chasm in the United States um i wonder if, if something gets uh, if it's the beginning of a correction of something though um even if trump um you know isn't um convicted in the senate when christine is talking about you know what happens going forward um i do you think that this may quell start to quell the madness rampant on both sides about um, complaining about fixed elections generally like that's having to see that, 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 that is what brings us to this cataclysmic point. No, (laughs) because that had no basis in reality to begin with. It had no basis in reality in 2017, no basis in reality in 2018 has no basis in reality in 2020. It's a convenient excuse it's a paradigm that they were a construct that they worked themselves up into, which is folded into a general persecution complex. The particulars are not really important. It's a general sense that the institutions are arrayed against you. You don't actually have to justify it, in fact, because when you're pressed on it, you can just hurl this typhoon of accusations out that you've never actually researched yourself. But the, t- the, the, the mounting number of accusations themselves constitute evidence in your mind. And all of it is just a, an, a construct, an idea that justifies your own recalcitrance. But and it, that's the objective. The recalcitrance is what you want to hold on to. So as long as you're committed to that psychological 
predisposition. Oh, wait, and okay. the evidence is you, you work the evidence backwards to justify it. Okay, well, but maybe there is a silver lining here. I'm going to really try to be an optimist because I've been so cynical the last few weeks that that Abe points to, which is it might not be uh, the rigging elections talk, but maybe the cult of personality around politicians will recede a little bit because Biden really is milk toast, right? It's what was his, it was his appeal. But the Hillary uh, Trump matchup was the Godzilla Mothra, right? Because both sides were really heavily invested in the personalities of their candidates. I would love to see a lot more milk toast at the top of our political life for the next few years. And that include, I mean, it's the one silver lining to having kind of aging partisans on both sides controlling the institutions of Congress, right? Nancy Pelosi, when she does her slay queen uh, bullshit, pardon the French, but they, but, but it's, it, you can see it's a kind, it's not really how she goes about her business. Same with McConnell. So that would be a welcome silver lining to all this uh, chaos of the last, you know, 10 years. And sadly, we're not going to get that either, uh, in part because the worst, no. <laughs> the worst possible outcome has materialized. The 50-50 Senate, in yeah. which Kamala Harris is the most important person in American politics, and the image makers have been working overtime to force her she did into not get some her sort of a role. She did Vogue cover, did she? Oh, no, wait, can we talk about the Vogue cover? That. She doesn't have that political star power naturally. She's a maladroit politician. They've been trying their best to make her into some sort of a star, and they were, will continue to do so and have a much have much more opportunities now that she's going to be occupying this prominent position, uh, breaking tie-breaking votes, however many of those there are. Yeah. Okay, we got to pull back and talk about the Vogue cover. I wanted to talk about this days ago. but <laughs> So if people don't know, uh, Kamala Harris is on the cover of Vogue, and she had a photo shoot of her in a kind of, you know, classic power politician <laughs> garb uh you know cream colored against a background and that photograph was taken in the last uh, couple of weeks and then apparently anna winter the editor of vogue i looked at it and she was like eh, this is boring and they found this actually pretty fantastic photograph of her taken in 2018 in a much more colorful outfit where she's wearing sneakers um and it's a it's actually a great picture like if a, some, some photograph like that had been taken of me i would be thrilled it's uh-huh. like it's you know nearly iconic and she or her people or somebody went absolutely ballistic and said that vogue had violated an agreement they had agreed that they would only use the picture that was taken and blah 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 and so which vogue, was used for the print cover like the print magazine no. shipped with the good image right or what the digital no, like no, one no, of no, them no. Is- the, the digit they use the digital they use the one that the harris one, approved the in order one. to make okay. peace with harris okay now harris is not the editor of vogue she doesn't get to pick the photo of her that goes on the cover of vogue she is or her people are uh dumb to have objected to the photo that was chosen which was vastly better and vastly more flattering and vastly more interesting than the one she did. But that's an aesthetic choice. Fine. But- Vogue very gently said, well, you know, I, we have to say we never said that we were going to use that photo. And we we actually had talked about the other photo and nobody said that we couldn't. But we're really sorry to have offended in any way, shape or manner possible and this, to me, suggests sort of what Noah's talking about in very – she is tone deaf and nuts. I mean, I don't know if she's nuts or if her people are nuts, but if this is how she wants to start dealing with the pre- with a friendly press doing a hagiographic 
cover an article about her is to whine that she didn't get the picture that she wanted of herself on the cover. But there's, let me just, two things about the picture. One is that the iconic sneakers were like a main message of her campaign as vice president. She was always shown in her sneakers, like, look at her and her amazing sneakers. So the fact that they were complaining about that is ridiculous. It was one of her branding uh, things. But the other thing is it shows this split that we've seen in other cases on the left, because it was about race. The the woke left online was like, the only reason they did this to her is because she's a black woman. Forgetting, I guess, the multiple extremely flattering uh, Michelle Obama covers <laughs> on Vogue that were, you know, but the they glamour. Did what? They did what to her? They used a better photo. But well, no, they they got, but the idea... More interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Abe. I'm sorry. No, no, I mean, I agree it's a better photo, but the idea is that it, it diminished her power because yes. it was a more casual exactly. photo. So it's... It, they can't stand black women's power. That right. was kind of the message, right? So, it's like, so, we're so scared of black women's power. I'm so like, it was robbing are. her of authority. Right, right. Democrats have a bizarre obsession with footwear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the pumps... They have been fetishizing on. footwear for... <laughs> Many years. There needs to be some sort of a psychological expose. We're going to get a new sponsor if you keep talking like that. No. I'm, I'm, talking, I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about what this says about the peculiarity of Kamala Harris's position. Uh, Noah's talking about how she's being, you know, how she now has, you know, uh, unaccustomed or unusual power for a vice president because of her tie-breaking role in the Senate, and that is true. Um. If they have used this in some fashion or other to send some kind of message to the press that she is going to be unfriendly unless they do everything that she wants them to do, she is making a mistake. And I'll explain to you why I think she's making a mistake. Uh, Oddly enough, despite the fact that the press is, you know, incredibly democratic uh, and incredibly liberal and, you know, is getting more so and is more hostile to Republicans as the, as the minutes tick away. The press in general does not like being yelled at by the people that they admire, like most people. And I'll give you, again, let me just, uh, not to be like Scheherazade with stories inside stories. Um, I was incredibly admiring of Rudy Giuliani when he was the mayor of New York City, and I was the editor of the editorial page of the New York Post for a time, and I was a columnist in the paper for a time, and I was incredibly admiring. And he and his people called me all the time and yelled at me. Hmm. If I didn't, if I used a, if, if I, if, if anything was said that wasn't, he is the second coming of Diogenes, they, bitched and moaned and yelled at me. Christine Latigano, his political aide, various other people. Um, and it was really ugly. And it was because I was friendly, because the post was friendly. And that is, and and you know what? It made me angry. Like it made me less, less uh, willing to write, hey, geographically about Rudy Giuliani. And this is part of the story of Bill Clinton. It's part of the story of Hillary Clinton's career and her weird relation with the press. And if Kamala Harris wants to alienate Barack Obama, Barack Obama's people reinforce that sort of thing constantly. Yeah, but, and you begin much, to saw a little bit of, of a, a, some right. irritation 
with that but, sort of thing towards the end. I'm, of this, but I'm saying term. this is not a good way for Kamala Harris to start because she, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say she's the difference is that both with Trump and Obama and Michelle Obama as well, they all had natural charisma. Neither Hillary Clinton nor Kamala Harris have any natural charisma. It's been entirely manufactured for them by their by their advisors and aided and abetted by the press. So I think it's it's even worse than than her turning on a press that that should be friendly and they might respond without the manufactured charisma that the that the press has made for her she's going to have a real she's just going to be she'll be mike pence i mean which is fine that's kind of the vp role but that is not the role the party wants for her in the future and that will become more uh clear i think as time goes on even if she is doing these amazing tie-breaking votes she just a friend of mine went to during the democratic primaries went to a little cocktail party that was hosted here in washington for her she was very gung-ho on kamala she came back astonished. She just said, she's just so boring. She has nothing to say. And she said, and this is someone who's been around a lot of politicians and it, she knows all politicians don't always have something to say, but she said it was, it was literally like a net deficit having her at the part. Like you, ex- your expectations were high, but then it's like she was sucking the life out of the room by just kind of stand. It was, it was weird how she described it. And she's a partisan Democrat. So she wanted to love her and she just couldn't. In this case, I'm just saying, like, this is a very, this speaks to political instincts that we saw how Kamala Harris in her presidential race um, showed very, very poor political instincts. She did not know how to follow up with the, you know, with her attack on Joe Biden that gave her that, you know, momentary shot her momentarily into the political stratosphere. Uh, she was in constant. She kept saying different things and coming out in things in different ways. In the end, it all worked out for her great because she's now the vice president of the United States and, you know, is a very serious potential president at some point, uh, maybe next week. I mean, who knows? But, you know, uh, uh, but the instinct to go to war with Vogue uh, when and, and and to accuse Vogue of doing something that Vogue did not do, which is to violate some agreement to use a specific picture on the cover, um, it's it's uh, it's weird. Uh, it's politically um, it, it's tactically foolish, and it it suggests something about her that Republicans should watch closely because uh, to the extent that you know politics is a game and people uh, and the the great thing in all sports competitions is when your rival makes unforced errors she is giving every indication of being somebody who makes unforced errors and 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 that's i think in uh you know an interesting sidelight to the more important stuff that we're we're talking about here but i want to get back to the republic question of this uh republican party uh immovable at this moment after a week in its uh, general support of of trump it's not immovable like there's as i said there's been some there's been some degeneration uh um and you know that's when people write to me or write to us to talk about you know why we're being so mean to trump or something like that there is this why aren't you on the bandwagon you know you know you are you're 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 out of the tent you're a rhino you're you know you're all of that, you know, we're going to expel you, uh, which, of course, is what um, Jim Jordan said about Liz Cheney, right? Liz Cheney said she was going to vote to impeach. And Jim Jordan, uh, you know, uh, uh, fresh from um, uh, a life uh, making excuses for uh, pedophile coaches, um, uh, says he's going to take, you know, he, he's going to make moves to take her out uh, of, of, of leadership. Um, so, 
you know, I don't know. Uh, if if this is the mood, um, I don't know what happens. Anyone want to speculate? Apparently not. <laughs> you guys are all. I mean, speculation's ridiculous, right? We have no, you know, what'll be, what'll, what'll be, will be. Well, one Freedom Caucus member, at the, I'm, and I'm blocking on whom it was, I, who it was, I forget, I'm sorry, but uh, <clears throat> one of them didn't, there was this letter circulated by Jim Jordan saying that she should be removed from her position as number three in the conference, and um, one of them, public, through, through a spokesperson, said that they didn't support that, so there's at least... A, a lack of uh, consensus among the most insurgent wing of the Republican Party that that's the proper remedy here. Uh, okay, well that's that, that's good to hear, but that's specifically in Liz Cheney's case. I mean, um, a, the fact that we are moving into a, a, a position in which uh, uh, Trump, having lost the election, having having played a direct role in the loss of the Senate uh, control to Democrats in his behavior in Georgia and having um, having been uh, comp- uh, having been involved in the in the uh, run-up to and the and the instigation of the riot at the Capitol uh, will leave office and potentially be someone to whom people still need to swear fealty and loyalty tests in order to maintain their political viability. Um, that's yet another unprecedented thing and, and is very uh, interesting and I think very worrisome, but it may be the phenomenon that we're going to face. Abe, you got, you got nothing for me? Well, I mean, I don't know. I just, I mean, it kind of touches on what we were talking about, I think, yesterday, which I think, you know, going forward, it depends on how much of a role Trump continues to play in our politics, what, what he... What he tries to um, assert in his sort of like, you know, never ending defense of himself, you know, going forward. Um, he he can invent, he can continue to invent fealty tests out of office. But and, well, I wonder if the average Republican voter, after experiencing a couple of years uh, out of power, all power, <laughs> you know, not controlling Congress, not controlling the presidency, um, and the kind of legislation and and very likely overreach we're going to see on the Democratic side might cure them of some of that attention that they f- would otherwise focus on Trump and his grievances, especially if he's been if everyone knows he's been barred from running again. That's why I think that's important. Like, the, what do you rally? You rally around an angry old guy who thinks he got well, cheated out of election. Who cares? Like, at a certain point, given all the other problems the country faces, I think a lot of reasonable, even reasonable pro-Trump people will be like, ah, just enough. Like, the show is over. Let's move right on. Right now, right now, if there were a Senate trial that were speedy and happened before the inauguration, right now, there is no way that he would be barred from serving in office again. Right now, he would not be convicted by the Senate based on the polling that we're seeing. I think that's that's self-evident that he that you could get 10 votes or maybe even 12 votes, but you wouldn't get the 17 that are necessary or the 18. I'm not even sure. It, it's a weird it's a weird thing because I think you need two thirds of the members present. And so uh, at least there are a couple of cases. I think the the number of senators now is 98, not not 100 because the two Georgia senators have not been seated because the election hasn't been formally certified. So even if that were to happen, I'm not sure you would get the number necessary. I, I doubt you'd get the number necessary because it would simply be too politically damaging for 
Republican senators to cast the vote and they can use, they can default to the same thing that everybody in the house was saying, which is, this is a time for unity. Why would we want to do something that was so disunifying, you know, all of that, which is a, which is a, obviously a reasonably effective spin since, uh, since they all got together in a room behind uh, somewhere and decided to use it, you know, systematically. Um, And there is a genuine, I believe, stated desire on the part of, uh, Democrats and Trump skeptical Republicans and certainly uh, people in the middle in the independent column to move on from the age of Trump, to move on from all this, to get past it, to extirpate his his you know, malign influence on our politics. But that will run up against and conflict with the Democratic imperative to tether every single Republican to Donald Trump from now until the rapture. Nikki Haley is going probably going to run for president in 2024. She just launched a pack this morning towards that end, presumably. And what is the focus of the press on this? Well, she hasn't shown any pictures of herself with Trump. She hasn't shown herself in the time she spent as a UN ambassador with Trump, defending Trump, being Trump's, you know, supporter and, and, uh, and phalanx. And yeah, the question, you know, the response to that, well, is that bad? I mean, is that, isn't that ultimately what you kind of say you want? And it is. But the political imperative for Democrats is to keep Trump in our politics in perpetuity. And that's probably what's going to win because it's a, it's the strategic approach. It's not just tactical. It's it's smart strategy. Um, but it's well, not going to be good for politics. Once again, be careful what you wish for because this could be some version of Bill Clinton urging Trump to run in 2015 because he thought it would help Hillary. And guess what happened? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if the Democrats want to keep Trump at the center of American political life, they may just get him reelected in 2024. I mean, if you sort of think it through, the martyrology of Trump on the Republican side could really intensify over the next year or two years. If there is a weak indictment of him uh, by the uh, New York uh, District Attorney's Office, uh, that is, you know, basically just a slapping together of, 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 of uh, vague tax charges and this and that and the other thing, uh, he can just claim that he's being politically persecuted. If they do X, Y, and Z, uh, they can claim that he's being politically persecuted and he will roar out of the gate in 2023 saying, um, you know, they, they everything was a witch hunt. Everything's been a witch hunt. All, they wanted to kill me because I'm there for you. And maybe Biden will be terrible and maybe he'll be out of office and Kamala will be president and we'll show the same political skills that we've been, we talked about 10 minutes ago. And maybe he'll be president again in 2025. I mean, well, that's, more, I mean, yeah. yeah, I was going to sorry to interrupt, but I just, it's, it's the, the Democrat, the sort of cultural left that we spend a lot of our time examining and warning against the excesses of and whatnot. Like they, I really, this is where it goes back to the free speech stuff we were talking about earlier. They do need to be careful because right now, like, I feel like the theme song they have in their head is karma police, but it's going to be upside did it again. If they go down the path that you just outlined, John, and that's going to be entirely on their shoulders as well as the Republicans who didn't appropriately punish Trump. Right. See, I, I want to uh, maybe finish up by just saying this one thing, which is that uh, I am now saying, you know, look, watch out, you know, indictment, impeachment, and however they handle the trial and how they talk about him and all this uh, may, be, uh, may strengthen him in the future. And therefore, as somebody who, you know, um, thinks that he was unfit to hold office and that he has disgraced the office uh, in the last month with his uh, be last two months with his behavior and should be impeached and removed uh why you know why uh 
what's going on here? And I think the answer is, I think that he needed to be impeached and removed for reasons that have nothing whatsoever to do with his political viability or the current political standing of the United States. This is weirdly not political on my on my behalf. The Congress of the United States was stormed uh, uh, and and looted a little bit and kind of sacked a little bit, and it was uh, an event that, as Lynn say, Lynn, uh, as Liz Cheney said, was incepted and to some extent directed by him, and that we need to be on record that this can never happen again. And I, the the political or ideological origins of it are very interesting and very important. It will be something that we'll be dealing with for a long time, but that's not why I supported impeachment and support removal. It is because this is something that anyone can do. This is something that any political movement could do, in theory. Every other country in the world uh, with a uh, lively and complex political system has faced such things before, but we haven't. We haven't, and uh, it can get worse, and so something needs to be done to cauterize the wound to close it, to cauterize it, and to seal it up, and so that's why I'm for it. Even though the consequences that I'm laying out may may be long term, something that uh, that I think will also be bad for the country in short order. But that would be worse. Does anyone uh, have any other? thoughts on this? I, I agree with that. And that was why Liz Cheney's statement, which I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but Steny Hoyer cited in his own remarks, Liz Cheney's yeah. statement made exactly that point. Um, and she's, you know, she's a pretty right wing uh, elected official. Like she's very conservative, very, very conservative Republican. It was, it's about the institutions. And we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about institutions and what they're useful for and why we need them. Um, and that's precisely the, at the most crucial institution, one branch of government incites and attacks another, that has to be stopped. Um, and that isn't, that that should be something that we can all agree on as, you know, despite our part, whatever partisan loyalties people have. Okay, great. Well, we'll be back with you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.